Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker, and today we're going to discuss inflammatory bowel disease. Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, is inflammation in the intestine, and there are four primary white blood cell types that can cause this inflammation. Lymphocytes, plasmacytes, eosinophils, and neutrophils are all different forms of potential inflammatory bowel disease. Hands down, the most common form of IBD in pets is lymphocytic plasmacytic enteritis, gastritis, and colitis. If inflammation is left in the intestine long enough, a whole host of, debil of debilitating things can happen to your pets. Both dogs and cats do acquire IBD, and both dogs and cats are susceptible to dysbiosis uh, and leaky gut, which means the ratio of good to bad bacteria becomes off in the small intestine. Leaky gut is where the tight junctions of the cells become inflamed, and then they allow partially digested proteins and potential allergens into your pet's bloodstream. When those allergens hit your pet's bloodstream, a systemic immune reaction is sparked, of course. Your pet's body responds to, to those partially digested proteins and allergens like a foreign invader and in, mounts an intense immune response, which ultimately can result in allergies and in worst case scenario, autoimmune disease, which is also called immune-mediated disease, where the body ends up actually attacking itself. Uh, secondary infections are incredibly common with, uh, with IBD patients, which means they're not capable of having balanced, healthy gastrointestinal defenses. Over 50% of your pet's GI tract is found in his or her gastrointestinal tract, and when there's inflammation present, your pet's GI uh, immune system can't function normally. You can see secondary organ degeneration, which means kidney and liver function can be affected with chronic inflammatory bowel disease. And nutritional deficiencies actually are quite common because the inflammation impedes normal absorption and processing of nutrients. With cats, there's been a correlation between gastrointestinal cancer, GI lymphoma, and chronic IBD. So a whole host of things happen when inflammation in your pet's GI tract is not addressed. There are several root causes of why IBD happens in pets, but one of them that is, I believe, really quite overlooked when it comes to veterinary medicine addressing the root causes of IBD is actually parasites. Many, many puppies and kittens, in fact, I will venture to say 80% of puppy male puppies and 80% of of abandoned or rescued animals coming into shelters are parasite positive in some way, shape, or form. So that can be roundworms, hookworms, tapeworms, coccidia, giardia, all of these different gastrointestinal parasites cause GI inflammation. Now here's my frustration. Good breeders will identify if the pregnant bitch or queen has parasites. They will get that deworming, deworming uh, completed before those animals are bred so that their litters are parasite free. Breeders that don't do this oftentimes will sell you a puppy or kitten that comes with parasites. Rescue dogs and cats, and certainly most puppy mill dogs and cats, where health concerns are not top of the list, those puppies and kittens end up with a lot of GI parasites as well. The frustration um, then tr is transferred to the veterinary community where instead of veterinarians specifically identifying what parasite the puppy or kitten has, they say, well, let's just do a broad spectrum blanket treatment with a broad spectrum dewormer at six weeks, nine weeks, 12 weeks, and 16 weeks. And then at the end, we'll check and make sure that they're gone. The downside about that particular process is that without identifying what specific parasite your pet could be dealing with. Not only are you supplying three or four unnecessary dewormings, but you're deworming for not the correct parasite. So for instance, what I see at my practice is many dogs are uh, have been dewormed three or four times by the time that they come to natural pet. When I check a fecal sample, those puppies are coccidia positive, which these broad spectrum dewormers don't take care of, or they're giardia positive. 
Giardia causes a wax and wane diarrhea and chronic low-grade inflammation in the GI tract, and it is not amendable tra to traditional dewormers uh, that veterinarians might prescribe. So a much more sound approach would be to identify if your puppy or kitten has parasites. That means do a minimum of three fecal analysis through your veterinarian a month apart to make sure your pup or kitten is parasite-free. If they're not, picking the appropriate deworming and then treating until the parasite's completely resolved is a really important part of decreasing GI inflammation. By the, times, by the time I see many puppies at 16 weeks of age, they come to me for intermittent soft stool, which means the GI inflammation has already begun. Oftentimes, it's an oversight of Giardia or Coccidia, which means although the pups have been dewormed, it has not been with a correct dewormer. So they've had six weeks of unexplained GI inflammation, which has translated into symptoms, which ultimately brings them for a second opinion to my practice. Part of the frustration through most veterinary clinics uh, when it comes to these animals that have low-grade inflammation is that um, they're, they're treated with antibiotics. And antibiotics is actually the second reason why IBD can occur. When gastrointestinal antibiotics are used, I wish I could tell you that they obliterate only the nasty, gram-negative, uh, unhealthy bacteria, but in, in essence, they're obliterating all of the bacteria. The good bacteria, the billions of good bacteria that line your pet's GI tract are wiped out along with the opportunistic gram-negative nasties. So when, when puppies end up with intermittent diarrhea, many veterinarians say, well, let's just do a couple rounds of antibiotics, not realizing that actually, although you're obliterating the GI tract of those bacteria, what can regrow is then an abnormal ratio of good to bad bacteria, which is the definition of dysbiosis. So oftentimes, by the time puppies and kittens are 16 weeks of age, they have been, they have had long-standing, six weeks, GI inflammation. They have been deroomed inappropriately or ineffectively. They've been on one or two rounds of antibiotics, which have obliterated the good and bad bacteria. Their guts have not been reseeded with an appropriate probiotic, and they're well on their way to chronic low-grade GI inflammation. Sometimes I've met dogs and cats at six months of age who've already started into low-grade prednisone therapy, which is an immunosuppressive steroid that's used to help control GI inflammation, which means the cycle of controlling unaddressed, the root cause of, of unaddressed GI inflammation um, has, are, has not been identified and has already, uh, has already been suppressed with drugs that treat the symptoms but not the underlying root cause. So steroids and other drugs are actually the third main reason why inflammatory bowel disease can come about. And so between parasites um, and drug therapy as well as um, foods, uh, dietary intolerances, there are several big reasons why inflammatory bowel disease can be set up early on in a pet's life and then continue through a pet's later years. In my practice, the trend I see is that dogs end up with intermittent soft stool as puppies, or kittens have intermittent soft stool. They have uh, what owners will call a sensitive stomach. Sensitive stomachs means that those pets are incapable of having a normal dietary change without major GI consequences. Just as you are designed to eat different foods at every meal and not have GI consequences, dogs and cats that have healthy, resilient, strong GI tracts should be able to have their food changed, maybe not every day, but every two to three months, and not have negative GI consequences. I meet many, many, in fact, oh, I would say more than 50% of my patients that come to me 
owners will say, my pet has a history of GI uh, food intolerances or GI sensitivities when foods are changed. And what that tells me is that those dogs and cats that are sensitive, their, their immune defenses in their gut not strong enough to be able to withstand a dietary change. That could mean that they have a level of low-grade inflammation that's been present for weeks to months or years by the time they end up seeking a second opinion. The food intolerances can start as <clears throat> either being fed a poor quality, not species appropriate diet, which means a food that's high in unnecessary carbohydrates. Dog and cat foods that contain a lot of corn, wheat, and rice can cause unnecessary inflammation in the gut. But on the flip side to that, I do have uh, a fair share of my clients that <clears throat> identify that their pets need a species appropriate diet so they get the carbohydrates out which is excellent but then let's say they put their cats on a raw food chicken based diet and they feed chicken for weeks and then months and then years and actually what can happen is your cat can develop a chicken hypersensitivity which ultimately manifests itself as gastrointestinal inflammation with the end diagnosis being inflammatory bowel disease. So overfeeding too much of a good thing can lead to IBD. Overfeeding too much of a not species appropriate food can also lead to food intolerances, which can evolve into food-based allergies, which ultimately can end with a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. So there are two different uh, diagnostic tests that can be done to to make sure that you know that your pet's dealing with inflammatory bowel disease. The first diagnostic test is a confirming test, which means um, there's, there's a biopsy taken which assesses morphologic characteristics, which means we're looking at the cell types through a biopsy. That's not my first choice because it's expensive, it involves anesthesia, and there's some risk in that regard. The second test, which I use quite commonly at my practice, is a functional gastrointestinal test, which is a blood draw. And what the blood draw assesses is actually two different B vitamins. The first B vitamin is called folate. Folate is a water-soluble B vitamin that is not easily absorbed in the small intestine unless it's deconjugated. Deconjugation occurs in the small intestine, and animals that are incapable of deconjugating folate, which means the small intestine is so unhealthy that they can't, in essence, break down the folate to an absorbable form, will ultimately be folate deficient, which means their blood test will show low folate. If you do a functional GI test and your pet comes back with a low folate level, this can mean one of two things. It either means that your pet's assimilation and absorption is poor, uh, or it means that, um, that your pet is struggling with the conjugation process, meaning that your pet has unaddressed small intestinal disease. Now, sometimes folate levels can be high on your pet's blood work, and what happens with high folate levels most of the time is that there, there are some bacteria, a, a small amount of bacteria in your pet's small intestine that can actually produce some B vitamins. When these B vitamin-producing bacteria bloom, which means when there's an overgrowth of these B vitamin-producing bacteria, you can actually end up with high folate levels. This condition is called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and the clinical diagnosis is made with an elevated folate level. The second blood test that will assess gastrointestinal function in your pet is cobalamin. Cobalamin is another B vitamin, and cobalamin uh, is bound to protein. And it is released, the B vitamin cobalamin is released from this protein through a complex series of steps occurring first in the stomach and then in the small intestine. If cobalamin levels are, are low, we can assume that this process is not occurring. And uh, ultimately speaking, cobalamin is a reflection of digestion, so the condition would be called maldigestion, as well as 
pancreatic problems, specifically EPI or exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So if you're suspicious that your pet may have IBD and you're not interested in really doing a biopsy at this point, asking your veterinarian for functional GI testing is a really good idea. At my practice, I also do two additional blood tests, a TLI and PLI, which are two functional tests that assess pancreatic function. Oftentimes, secondary pancreatitis is a very common sequelae or concurrent disease when inflammatory bowel disease is happening in your pet. So assessing pancreatic function is an important step as well. All of these tests are run through Texas A&M Gastrointestinal Lab, and your veterinarian uh, can learn more about Texas A&M GI Lab on the web. So dietary considerations for pets that have IBD. Keep in mind that most of the time symptoms of IBD are vomiting, diarrhea, soft stool, intermittent mucus in the stool, sometimes blood can be found in your pet's stool. In severe cases, you can see lethargy, fever, anorexia, weight loss with chronic IBD patients. So if your pets have some of those symptoms, recognizing that you need to get a diagnosis and not make sure something else is going on is a very important step. Your veterinarian will probably tell you to feed a bland diet. Uh, if your pet's having current symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease, my idea of a bland diet is quite different than probably the traditional veterinarian's idea of a bland diet. I I recommend ground cooked turkey and canned pumpkin or cooked sweet potato. The reason I don't recommend the traditional beef and rice is that beef has a tendency to be too high in fat, which can actually exacerbate GI inflammation and pancreatitis. Rice is a complex carbohydrate which can be fermented in the GI tract, and fermentation produces gas, and gas can lead to more gastrointestinal problems. So I do recommend um, a, a carbohydrate in the sense of grain, a grain-free bland diet to be a little bit more suitable to animals that are having active symptoms of IBD. At the same time, your veterinarian uh, may tell you to, to go on a bland diet. You need to be thinking about the next step for dietary requirements because you can't feed your pet a bland diet forever. You need to balance your pet's diet. Working with an integrative veterinarian on picking out a novel protein, which means a protein source that gives the GI tract a rest because your pet hasn't consumed it before, is an important step of giving the GI tract and the immune system in the GI tract a break. Picking out a novel vegetable or uh, a fiber source is also a very important part of creating an atmosphere uh, in, or an anti-inflammatory diet to help facilitate healing within the small and large intestine. We recommend that you work with an integrative veterinarian to help put together a comprehensive protocol that will address not just diet uh, as well as lifestyle changes, but modifying vaccine protocols and working with removing the chemicals that can also address underlying uh, inflammation by removing some of these toxic additional um, components to your pet's lifestyle, which can harbor unaddressed inflammation. Uh, so an integrative veterinarian will help put a package deal together for you to help not only address your pet's GI inflammation, but create a lifestyle that's conducive to an anti-inflammatory uh, situation in your pet's gut.